0: begin a Dharma talk, I have this feeling as if I'm jumping off a cliff. (laughs) It doesn't seem to matter how many pages of notes I have. (laughs) There's no feeling of security. (laughs) And that's what it's about. (laughs) Um, As Kamala mentioned the other night, Metta is the first of the four Brahma-viharas. Brahma-viharas being Divine Abiding or Divine (coughs) Home. And tonight I would like to talk about The other three, the other three being karuna, or compassion, mudita, which is appreciative or sympathetic joy, and upeka, or equanimity. These are all qualities of the heart and mind that are present when we're at home, connected and at ease with with life and its unfolding. We can cultivate these qualities through deliberate cultivation, as we're doing in the metapractice now, or just through the way that we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. The Brahma-viharas serve as a foundation for living in a harmonious and peaceful way with others. They give rise to a balanced state of mind where insight or wisdom can arise, leading us to liberation. Although all of the brahmaviharas can be practiced as separate practices they are all very intrinsically linked and the practice of the brahmaviharas is a means to understanding the true nature of our hearts and mind and it is a natural expression of this so beginning with karuna or compassion Compassion is classically described as the quivering or trembling of the heart in response to suffering. It happens when we come in contact with suffering and are able to connect and respond without being overwhelmed by it. It has the quality of fearlessness. It's where we are willing and able to act with a courageous heart that steps outside of the boundaries of our separate self. Compassion pulls us into action when we come into contact with that which is unwholesome, harmful, or damaging to others. We become motivated by the desire to alleviate suffering rather than pulling away, cutting off, denying, or retreating from these painful states or situations. So through the practice of metta, we begin to open to all beings through the recognition of how deep down we all have this desire to be happy. We share this universal wish. In compassion practice, we then begin to open to all these beings through the recognition of suffering and the universality of this suffering. The metta lays the foundation to begin to work with compassion. When we feel at home in life, a sense of ease, being able to love and to be loved, we have a base from which to begin to open. The Buddha often gave metta practice to people who experienced a lot of fear. And as we become less fearful, we have the courage to open to new depths. Um, I had an experience in my own practice which illustrated to me how metta does help to lay this foundation for compassion. Uh, A couple of years ago, I was home at Christmas time. And in being with my father, I was very much aware of his suffering. And, as is often the case with family members, their suffering can strike really close to the bone. So one night I decided that I would do some compassion practice for him. And I immediately, almost immediately, found myself in this state of grief, despair, anger. And then I started to blame him for it. Um, I realized that I probably wasn't practicing very skillfully, (laughs) and I stopped. Later that year, I was to do six weeks of intensive metta practice. And after six weeks, I switched into compassion. And in the instructions that are given, it's um, you begin with someone whom you know and that their suffering is very obvious. And my father immediately came to mind. So I decided to begin with him. And it was totally different this time. I could really just begin to connect with his humanness, the pain of his state, without being overwhelmed by it. Um, Just a feeling as if I was holding him in this state. And then later that day, I went out and looked up at the message board and there was a message for me. And it said, your father called, he sends his love. And it was really interesting to me, because my father never calls me. (laughs) And he never calls during a retreat. (laughs) So it really helped to bring home just the power of this practice. Nyanaponika Thera, who was a well-known German-born Theravadan monk, says about compassion, The world suffers, but most people have their eyes and ears closed. They do not see the unbroken stream of tears flowing through life. They do not hear the cry of distress continually pervading the world. Their own little grief or joy bars their sights, deafens their ears. Bound by selfishness, their hearts turn stiff and narrow. Being stiff and narrow, how should they be able to strive for any higher goal? To realize that only release from selfish craving will affect their own freedom from suffering. It is compassion that removes the heavy bars, opens the doors to freedom, makes the narrow heart as wide as the world. Compassion takes away from the heart the inert weight, the paralyzing heaviness. It gives wings to those who cling to the lowlands of self. This quality of compassion can be a very strong, motivating force in our lives. It may be what helped bring us to this retreat. When we hear the cries of our own hearts and minds, and the cries from those around us, it can motivate us to find a more healthy, fulfilling life. Wanting to live in a way that does not continually perpetuate more suffering. Our inquiry is not to escape life and suffering, but to come to understand how it is that we suffer. In this way, we begin to live in such a way as to reduce suffering in our lives, rather than perpetuating more. Our practice is not simply a get-high-feel-good remedy, but a way that is deeply transformative. It has the potential not just to affect our own lives, but of those around us. As our presence, words, and actions are more in touch with a place of caring, kindness, wisdom, and compassion, the way they touch others um, can be an inspiration for them to find it in themselves. Before I go any farther, I'd like to speak a little bit about the word suffering. The truth of suffering is the first of the Four Noble Truths that Buddha spoke about and very central to his teachings. In Pali, the word dukkha is used. It's often translated as suffering, but it probably has a a much broader meaning than most of us might associate with the word suffering. (coughs) We can readily understand it when we think of mental, physical, and emotional states that give rise to unpleasant conditions, but the word dukkha extends beyond this. It also means that which is insubstantial, unsatisfactory, or illusory. We find unsatisfactoriness when we pursue happiness in the fleeting experiences of life. Through our not seeing clearly and identifying with our experiences, we are chasing happiness happiness in conditions that are always changing, that there is no lasting happiness in this way. In one moment, we may feel good about our experience. And in the next, as it changes, as it disappears, we could be left with grasping or clinging to that experience. Dukkha also refers to this state of unbalance in being in constantly changing conditions. Our experiences can be pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, but they're always changing. There's nothing to hang on to. This can leave a feeling of vulnerability. I remember a time in my early 20s before um, I had any consistent meditation practice. I thought that I really had a very good life set up for myself. I lived out in the country, I worked in the outdoors, um, which was where I felt most at home. I had a lot of good friends around me. And because my work was seasonal, it meant that I had time to travel and to hike. And one of these travels took me to India. And this is where I first began um, meditating much more as a way of life. And when I began this, I kept having this image that what I'd been doing with my life was painting myself into a corner. I had really been seeking out all pleasant experiences, that I was continually turning my back on that which was painful. And it really struck me how superficial this was, that there was no way that this was sustainable in any of our lives, that at some point, even if we turn our back on other people's pain, we will be confronted with sickness, old age, and death. And I also began to realize how much energy was going into sustaining this lifestyle, and at what a cost it was. If we just look into our own life and reflect on all of the suffering we've encountered, and many of us may not have had really first-hand experience with starvation, violence, wars, but I know in my own life there's still been times of great agony. And then, if we look at the number of people that are on this planet and that they too have similar conditions, and that some of these people are actually living with starvation, living with the fear of death from wars, living or having experienced pain due to violence and abuse. Then, if we look, begin to look back to all of the people that have ever walked on this earth, that, that this really becomes a lot of suffering. It's more suffering than we can begin to open to in a one-week retreat. Buddha once described how if you put all the water from the four oceans together, it is still nothing in comparison with all the tears that have been shed through suffering. So it's really learning to work with this suffering, to come to understand it. Ajahn Chah, a well-revered Thai forest monk, once said, There are two kinds of suffering. Suffering that leads to more suffering, and suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. As I keep saying this word suffering in this talk, um, it really brings to mind to me when I first began doing vipassana retreats when I um, I remember coming home from my first retreat and saying, Buddhists really have a thing about suffering. No. <laughs> and then after that, in the first few retreats, every time that it would come up in a Dharma talk, I think, oh no, here we go again. <laughs> and then through my practice, I started becoming aware of deeper and deeper levels of suffering. It started to ring more true. But at that point, I started to think maybe the suffering was just the result of doing the practice itself. (laughs) Maybe I should switch practices. (laughs) Then, slowly, slowly, it dawned on me that what I was experiencing was really a magnified version of how I lived my life. How I was run by desire and aversion. And how I rarely saw things clearly, that there was always some filter that I was looking through without even knowing it. And at this point I became very interested in suffering. It's central to our practice, learning to open to that which is painful, unpleasant, cut off. All those places we have separated off as not being okay. It's not that we want to wallow in these states, but so that we can begin to understand them for what they are and how it is that they create this veil of separation when we identify with them. The society we live in today is very geared toward a denial of suffering. We institutionalize the handicapped or the sick. We put the aging in homes and cover over the dying process. As a result, we often get the idea that when suffering does happen, It means we have done something wrong or bad. Then we try to hide it, gloss over it, or cut it off, through denial or pretending that painful things aren't happening, sweeping them under the carpet. This can be evident in a large scale in our society by um, the amount of child abuse, alcoholism, and drug abuse. Often it can be happening in our own backyards, and we turned a blind eye to it. Another way that we do this is in how we relate to people. Jumping away from places of controversy. Which at times can be skillful, but at other times it's through this intention to keep things nice. To not cause waves. Keeping a smile on our face when underneath a lot more can be going on. But we're not willing to expose ourselves in a way that could stir the water, or that may pull us out of this illusion of security. It's so important to come to this place of understanding that suffering does exist. For many of us, having spent the afternoon working with a difficult person, it might not be so difficult at this time. We may have come in contact with feelings of fear, rage, despair, grief. It is the work of compassion to be able to open to these states and to accept them. In this acceptance we begin to taste of freedom. On my first trip to Burma, after a few months of practice, I started to experience a lot of anger, hatred, and ill will. It was really quite shocking to me. I'd always thought of myself as being a reasonably kind person. And then these states came on quite strong, and they didn't subside with time. It was a very difficult time for me, very humbling. In the end, what I found I could only do was to hold it with compassion, that there was this being that was really suffering. It also helped me to connect with the universality of suffering. No longer could I condemn those who were violent, abusive, and causing destruction, but I could begin to hold them in my heart, knowing how deep their pain was. As Steve mentioned last night, if someone angers or outrages us, it can be helpful to open to them in a larger context, to have some sense of what their life is like, the conditions out of which their anger is coming from. If we are to come to be able to uncover the compassionate heart, we must come to understand our anger. The Buddha was uncompromising when he spoke of not holding anger in one's heart. (coughs) In one of the suttas in the Nikaya, he says, Vikus, even if bandits were to sever you savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be carrying out my teaching. <laughs> Herein, Vikus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected, and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their wef- welfare with a mind of loving-kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. This is how you should train, bhikkhus. This is oftentimes not the message we received growing up. I recently came across this motto from... Colonel Gaston, as some of you may know, was the the first builder of the building that we're now sitting in. Um, He also owned the property across the way called Gaston Pond. His personal motto was, live every day so that you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. Gaston was described as being a rugged individual. (laughs) In our society, we have given a very high value to being individuals. This may have some positive aspects, but when we start to protect our individuality at the expense of others, it can become very damaging. One thing I'd like to emphasize in what the Buddha said in, in the quote that I just read, his last line, and this is how you should train bhikkhus, to remember this is a practice, a training. I'm not sure if someone was to savagely severe me, um, cut off me limb by limb, that I would really be able to hold them with a loving and compassionate heart. <laughs> but I do sense of the possibility. For inspiration, I look to people like the Dalai Lama or Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, whom Steve spoke a lot about last night, the elected democratic leader in Burma. Um, or Sister Chung Phong, a Vietnamese nun, who has been working with um, Thich Nhat Hanh for many years. All of these people have been either in their own lives or the lives of their fellow country people been exposed to immense suffering, torture, um, killings, violence. And through it all, they keep coming back to a kind and compassionate heart. Sister Chung Phong, um, she was born in 1938, and so she's been helping the people of Vietnam ever since she was in her teens. and. During this time, the Vietnamese people have gone through incredible hardship. And she's used this with her practice to help her, day after day, to be able to face both her own suffering and the suffering of others. In her book, um, Learning True Love, she says that when she is faced with speaking to someone who has caused harm and suffering, she keeps in mind that every being has the potential of Buddhahood. And that she's actually speaking to a future Buddha. When her rage comes on quite strong, instead of acting from that place, she uses walking meditation. And she will just walk until she feels calm enough to speak out of a place of clarity. Which doesn't mean that her words might not be strong, but that there is some place of clarity. some place of calmness that she can speak from. And she says, sometimes this takes days. It really calls upon us to develop patience. Compassion is not something that we only feel towards others, but it is equally essential in relation to ourselves. If we look at our meditation practice, there are many times where without compassion we only beat our heads against the walls. Mm times when we are faced with extreme difficulty or painful states, sometimes we may have the energy to open to them, and at other times we may, may need to have an honest recognition that we are at the edge of what we can open to, and may have to skillfully retreat from it, just to move back into a place of nurturance. The quality of forgiveness is also essential to compassion. First needing to forgive ourselves. If we cannot do this, how can we ever forgive others? Lao Tzu says, Some say that my teaching is nonsense. Others call it lofty but impractical. But to those who have looked inside themselves, this nonsense makes perfect sense. And to those who put it into practice, this loftiness has roots that go deep. I have just three things to teach, simplicity, patience, compassion. These three treasures are your greatest treasures. Simple in actions and in thoughts, you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile all beings in the world forgiving ourselves, being compassionate towards ourselves. I have found the practice to be so helpful with this. As I keep seeing the force of greed, hatred and delusion, something quite unexpected has happened. In tasting how strong these forces of habits are, I feel a greater patience in working with them. When I feel the suffering that occurs, compassion arises. How long have I been on this merry-go-round? How much pain and suffering have I endured? And as it's not just me that's in this predicament, but that we all are. Now, through this practice, I'm beginning to understand in a way that brings enough presence and inten- intentionality to my life that I can begin to free myself from these destructive habitual patterns. When we forgive ourselves, We are letting go of the past, releasing held tension, anger, fear, and prejudice, torments of our own mind. These torments keep us from meeting each moment in life with a fresh mind. Forgiveness does not leave us powerless should a person continue to harm us. Rather, it empowers us through the spaciousness it brings to respond from a place of wisdom and compassion. It may mean that we have the wisdom to remove ourselves from difficult situations. It does not rely upon an external resolution. Sometimes this may be possible and other times it isn't, but we don't have to carry the burden of grief, despair, and rage. Accepting that the resolution is out of our control, we can find resolution within. Forgiveness can be very difficult It takes us to the edge of what we can be willing to accept. But in this acceptance we need to allow whatever feelings arise, embracing them with a loving and compassionate heart. It is not something that can be forced. Through reconnecting again and again with the remembrance of the inherent goodness of all beings, it helps us to give, to have the courage to continue. the near enemy, or that which masks itself as compassion, is sorrow or grief. This is where we're experiencing the suffering through the veil of separation. It may occur as a slight contempt while seeing another person as weak or inferior. Maybe feeling sorry for them. But we're not truly connected with the universality of that suffering that when another being suffers, we also suffer. It still has an element of of aversion which may come through our own feelings of anger, fear, or grief. Whatever it is in ourselves that we aren't able to face up to. It can also be experienced as a feeling of self-righteous anger where there's still a me and a you rather than, here's suffering, what can we do about it? When the near enemy arises, we may find our energy being depleted. Or we may have the feeling of being shattered or overwhelmed by it. Um, Joseph Goldstein once said something that really stayed with me in my practice. When I would hit feelings of being overwhelmed by suffering, it is, only the emptiness can hold it all. In opening to suffering, I found both the tendency to feel responsible for other people's suffering and to want to try to take it on myself, as if then they would be relieved of their suffering, becoming burdened in a way that was of no help to anyone. Oftentimes, we may relate to the idea of being loving and compassionate as meaning that one is disempowered, weak, allowing other people to take advantage of us. But this is really only a misconception. Compassion is a very strong state in which we can connect with the suffering without fear. We are accepting things as they are, which doesn't mean that we aren't able to respond to situations, but that we're more clearly able to see the whole situation. Our response then comes from a place of connection rather than a conceptual level of how things ought to be or a habituated response. I so often think that in our spiritual practice we do ourselves immense harm by thinking that we should be able to open. But it's really in recognizing when we reach that edge with it. Using compassion with ourselves. A while ago I was talking to someone who was in quite a state of suffering. And at first I had a feeling of compassion for them. And then as they went on and on, It got more complicated, and suddenly my compassion turned more to a pity for them. (coughs) And then it was really interesting, at some point I noticed this, that there was this feeling of disconnection from it. Um, And I noticed that I really wasn't present with them anymore. When I realized this, I just simply brought myself back to the situation. It wasn't as though I told myself, oh, come on, be really compassionate. (laughs) Um, But I just connected back into the situation. And just in being present for them, the whole thing shifted. That it wasn't long before we found ourselves laughing. Just in being with someone in their pain is, is a possibility to help alleviate that suffering, bearing witness to their pain. The far enemy is cruelty. It's where we're so disconnected that we cannot stand suffering and shut down to it in a way that causes harm to ourselves and others. Sometimes cruelty can be very blatant. When in our rage we say things that we know will hurt other people. At other times it can be much more subtle. um, Maybe saying a joke that has some dig to it. However it manifests, it's a clear indicator that compassion is not at work. It can be a reminder to look and to see how it is that we have separated from that which we are being cruel towards. When we are truly living in connection with the world around us, we have no desire to cause harm, but instead live towards a life that is of benefit to all beings. Although we live in a time of great trouble, immense suffering, there's many individuals who exhibit tremendous faith, courage, wisdom, and compassion in the face of it. Recently I read of a man named Frankie Parker. He was a multiple murderer. He murdered his mother, father, and sister-in-law. And then in a standoff with police, he wounded a police officer. Um, when he was first on death row, he was known as a rebellious person, um, a rebel, and quite troublesome. Then, in a period of isolation, he came in contact with the Buddhist teachings. He recognized that freedom was possible even from the state of torment to which he was living. He took the teachings to heart. Um, and began practicing meditation. And this practice transformed the remainder of his life. In the last few years, years of his life, he became a beacon of light on death row. At the time of his death, he was able to be a teacher for many, including his friends and family. He approached death with fearlessness. His final statement was, For eight years I have worked on kindling a small light of others who have committed small... uh, I'm missing a sentence here. For eight years I have worked on kindling a small light of... um, (laughs) I wonder what it said. (laughs) My memory is not so good. Small light of hope, of inspiration <laughs> for others who have committed heinous crimes. May this small light be an inspiration and spread the flame of compassion to illuminate the entire universe so that all beings may realize the fundamental compassionate nature that resides within us all. Actually, earlier today, this might explain why there's a, a gap. I got to this section and I began to cry. <laughs> I was so touched by um, this man, just that you know, in this state of real suffering, real torment that he was able to tap into the possibility of freedom that in, it just inspires me, and in that no matter how deep the the pain, the grief, and the despair may be that or the feelings of guilt and shame and self-judgment about what we've done, the possibility of freedom is always there. Both metta and compassion practices can have quite a strong healing benefit. Um, I spent about a quarter of my life with chronic fatigue. In the beginning I fought it hard, I denied it, kept pushing it away. And this only compounded my suffering. And then, in recent years, through the practice of metta and compassion, um, I've come to experience it in a different way. At times when there's really no energy of curling up in a ball and imagining myself just bathing in a womb of unconditional love. Or, with compassion practice, just the acceptance of the state. It's not an acceptance in wanting it to go away, but just really opening to how it is right then. Sometimes the illness may temporarily disappear, and other times it is just the struggle that goes out of it. I think that I used to have a romantic idea of what compassionate heart would feel like, but in scratching the surface of compassion, I'm finding something quite different than this romanticism. It is oftentimes very humbling. It is not one where pride easily arises. Even to be fearless in the face of suffering, when we're truly connected, we know of its depths and it's nothing that we can brag about. It is simply that we are called into action, no bones about it. It is a spontaneous and natural act. Compassionate action in our lives may be quite simple. We don't have to go out and stop the wars, save the hungry. For this, some of us, this may be appropriate and called for action, but we can all begin by just facing the own, our own demons. It may be demons of fear, hatred, anger, frustration, boredom. When they arise, we can embrace them with kindness and care. We may have this strong pull to be socially active in the world, to speak out against injustice. But if we speak out in a reactive state, with anger, rage, hatred, are we not speaking out with the very same energy that wars are made of? By our willingness to come to terms with these energies in our own minds, we are stopping wars. Simple things such as being able to listen, being fully present for someone, bearing witness. Another way is to live the precepts. In this way we are align ourselves to living in a harmonious way with others, a way that respects life. It brings more intentionality to how we live, more awareness to our motivations and a greater understanding of how our actions affect others. Growing mindfulness begins to protect us, to keep us from performing actions that cause harm and that we may later regret. Our practice can be seen as compassionate action. It's our willingness to come to understand the nature of suffering. Practice cannot help but ripple out into the rest of our lives. As we learn to live more skillfully, it helps to inspire others to do the same. It becomes an expression of our deepest values. The Brahma-viharas all work together to balance each other out. It is compassion's function to remember, however great great the joy and happiness may be, there are still those caught in suffering. It moves us again and again into action in the world. It prevents us from becoming complacent in the world, but continually motivating us to a deeper and deeper understanding of suffering. Compassion also needs the balance of wisdom or we lack the skillfulness to know when it is time to act and when this will only lead to greater suffering. To have a compassionate heart is to be motivated by the desire for all beings to be free from suffering, to move from this place of intention, not being fearful or overwhelmed in the face of pain and sorrow, but a continual faith in the capacity of the heart to love. Originally I was going to tell a Jataka tale at this point, Um, a Jataka tale being a tale of the the past lives of the Buddha before he actually became the Buddha, when he was a bodhisattva, um, perfecting the qualities of wisdom, love, compassion. I really love the Jataka tales, and they're full of many stories of animals who um, create these kind of wonderful feats that, that are expressions of love and compassion. Um, and sometimes I hear them kind of as tall tales. But then I, I kind of reflected in my own life about the part that animals have played, and how they've been a great teacher to me. Um, some of them have been wild animals and some of them have been pets. And that these animals in my day-to-day life really do oftentimes exhibit these qualities. And so then I thought about telling this story about my dog that I once had. Her name was Kama. And I had her at a very difficult period in my life. Um, and she also was subject to a difficult life because of my conditions. <laughs> um, but she was, she was a very dear friend. She be- became a mother at a very young age and carried this quality of mothering through the rest of her life. Um, and it sometimes manifested in strange ways. When there was young puppies or kittens, she would often try to nurse them if they needed nursing, and it wasn't physically possible for her. <laughs> but she really cared for them. Um, but she had this kind of unconditional love for all beings. One day I saw it when there was a, a kitten that, or a cat that was playing with a spider. And she came across them. And she just kind of very gently went up to the kitten and nosed it away. And then the spider ran away and was safe. <laughs> Another time there was um, a couple of quite large dogs and herself playing with this little puppy. And as they were playing, they got quite brutal with the puppy. It was getting, kind of, the energy was getting quite hyped up and the puppy was bearing the brunt of it. And it was like she kind of noticed this, she stopped where she was, she looked around, there was this old bull, and she went and she started kicking it around. And as she started kicking it, the other dogs were like, oh, what's going on? And they started um, coming over and started batting this bowl around. And pretty soon, the puppy was left on its own, and was able to run free. <laughs> um, so she, she often had kind of quite playful tactics in, in the kind of stop, stopping of situations that where suffering was happening. She didn't come in really heavy-handed, but in quite playful, light, creative ways, was able to turn situations around. So, mudita is the next of the Brahma-viharas. Um, this is often translated as sympathetic or appreciative joy. It is where we delight or find joy in the happiness of others. The root meaning is to be pleased or to have a sense of gladness. In metta practice, we come in contact with all beings connecting through our desire to have true happiness in compassion, we expand this to opening to the suffering of others. And in mudita, we begin to connect with others through opening to their happiness. This Brahmavihara is often considered to be the most difficult. Oftentimes, when we come in contact with another person's happiness, if we're not feeling connected, we can easily fall into states of jealousy, envy, judgment or comparison. Um, it can look like they're happy, so when will I be happy? Or they don't deserve it, but I do. Or else someone gets something and we think because they have it that we won't be able to also have it. Um, it can We can have this underlying fear that there's only a limited amount of happiness available. Or else it can happen that um, in seeing someone else's good qualities, we start to feel that our blemishes are showing, and in comparison we don't quite match up. We could, may have seen this during our time here, where there could be someone sitting with just a slight smile on their face. And then as the days go by, they begin to glow. Do we delight in their happiness? Or do we start to think, what do they have that I don't? Why can't I be like that? Or, they're probably lost in sentimentality. (laughs) (laughs) These painful states arise out of feelings of separation, the mind of the comparison, or the I want mind. We are envious, jealous, hating to see the success or prosperity of others. And this can make us quite miserable. And this is called the far enemy of mutita. But through the practice, we can cultivate the quality of rejoicing in another's happiness. Just think of how, if we're able to rejoice in the happiness of others, how much this multiplies our opportunity for happiness. When we begin delighting in others' happiness, we begin to see how contagious it really is. How happiness, happiness does not go away when we share it. Rather, that it becomes more abundant. The heart becomes free. We can learn to be happy for people even when they derive their happiness from something that is quite different than what we would choose. An example being that someone may want to get married, settle down, build a house, and have a family. To some of us, this might sound like bondage. Yet, if in their lives they have this opportunity, and this is what they really want, we can rejoice in their happiness. But this doesn't mean that if someone was to marry an abusive person, are in debt over their heads, and have children that they can't afford to feed, that we would rejoice in their happiness. It needs to come from a place of authenticity. And sometimes we can have misconceptions about, about what will make us happy. It's when people are genuinely happy that we can rejoice. We also um, can learn to rejoice in the happiness of beings that we may not like. Being open to their happiness helps to soften our own hearts towards them. Mudita is also said to help eliminate boredom. This happens when we begin to connect with the little things in life. We don't have to wait for the big happiness, but can be de- delight in any moment of good fortune or prosperity. When there's boredom, we start stop seeing these little things. We lose interest. And this can be an, a form of aversion. But by reconnecting, it helps us to connect with our experience and the world around us. Even We probably know people who have a lot of suffering, and may not have so much happiness. But when they have even a moment of it, it's like a flash of lightning in the dark. And that we can rejoice in them having this blessing, this moment. One of the people in my own life, um, who really to me embodies Buddha is a Zen master that I've sat with named Hogan Daido Yamahata. Uh, he's commonly called hogan and he's this really delightful, mischievous little imp. <laughs> um, I used to organize sashims for him, and he would come to Australia. And so at that time I would spend a lot of time with him as he different people were coming to visit with him. And he was always able to delight in their happiness. Uh, one day I was sharing with him some good news that I had received and was very happy about this. And in sharing it with him, he grabbed my hands, clasped them in his, and started jumping up and down. <laughs> I had this feeling as if we were these four-year-old kids just celebrating our happiness. One thing that really struck me about his ability to do this was that he never fell into collusion with it. In the very next moment, he was equally as capable of coming in with the Zen stick. <laughs> which he did. <laughs> um, Mudita has an energizing quality to it. And it's important to stay connected to the experience, or we can be swept away into exuberance, which is Mudita's near enemy. And exuberance can take us into a state of exhaustion, um, where Mudita can just be the simplicity of delight of the heart in another person's happiness. It's mudita's function to remind us of joy when we are lost in sorrow. It helps keep compassion from being drowned or overwhelmed in pain. Um, where compassion helps to keep mudita from degenerating into sentimentality or ignorant optimism. Compassion also helps mudita to be boundless. Oftentimes we may take our practice seriously, thinking that practices such as mudita are only superficial, but happiness is said to be the proximate cause of concentration. Through mudita the mind becomes lighter, more buoyant. It gladdens the heart in a way that leads to greater sensitivity and tranquility. When we are calm and tranquil, it is easier to live from a place of wisdom and compassion. So, upekka or equanimity is the last of the Brahma Viharas. Upeka translated means balance. When we are in balance, the mind does not fall into extremes. This can often feel quite subtle, and yet it's so profound that really none of the other Brahma-viharas can unfold without it. When we have equanimity, we open equally to all experience. When we have pleasant experiences, there's no need to hang on to them, we can just let it be a pleasant experience. the unpleasant experience, there's no need to push it away. We can simply rest at ease in the changing conditions of life in a state of non-reactivity. Equanimity's near enemy is indifference. The quality that true equanimity has that indifference doesn't is connection with equanimity We still stay connected with the experience, maybe fully experiencing pain, yet we are non-reactive to the pain itself. It doesn't mean that we may not act in response to the pain, but the place of action comes from a place of balance. We also can let go of attachment to the outcome of our actions. When we have equanimity, we trust in the lawfulness of life. The Buddha called this lawfulness karma. The law of karma is the law of cause and effect. Each volitional or intentional act that we have has an effect. Sometimes these effects are immediately known and sometimes the intentions ripen in later conditions. In the simple immediate form of karma, we can see it by remembering a time when we, hurt, we did something that hurt someone. How did we feel about it at the time? How did we feel about it later on? Did we carry it with us? Sometimes we carry these events for years. Or similarly, if maybe we acted, um, did something with the intention of bringing love and kindness to a situation, how did we feel? Was there a lightness, a joyfulness in the heart? We begin to understand karma by paying attention to our underlying intentions and motivations, how our words and actions plant seeds and eventually bear fruit. When our intentions come from a place of love and care, they bear fruits of happiness. When our intentions are filled with anger and aversion, they bear fruits of pain and suffering. The phrase classically um, taught for equanimity practice is, all beings are heir to their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. I remember back to when I first did this practice intensively, I had been sitting for seven weeks, wishing well for all these beings. And then suddenly hearing this instruction, my mouth dropped. (laughs) What was the point? What was I doing? (laughs) Um, And in that experience I began to see how attachment had crept in, that I had somehow slipped into feeling responsible for other people's happiness. And when I actually began using these phrases, there came a sense of relief. This didn't mean that I didn't still wish well for them, but that I could not ultimately be responsible for their well-being. I mean, we could see this in the way of, there could be a friend who smokes, and although we may wish well for them, through the actions of their smoking, that there could be some harm or suffering that may result from it. It is equanimity's function to keep love and compassion from moving into uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity gives compassion the strength to move into action without attachment to the results. It helps strengthen the quality of fearlessness, bringing calmness and patience to the situation. Equanimity helps the other Brahma-viharas to move into boundlessness without exclusion, without exception. This is only touching upon equanimity. And I will leave it to Sharon to continue tomorrow night. (laughs) So just in closing, I'd like to um, say this quote from Kosho Uchayana. He says, The true self includes the entire world in which it lives. Therefore, there is nothing that is not a part of it. Everything encountered is life. To devote ourselves to everything we encounter and throw our life force into doing just that is quite different from simply exhausting our energy, our energies playing with toys. Here is our passion for life as joyful mind manifests and the significance of being alive. (coughs) So let's sit for a bit.